Hear now the word of the Lord. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of it to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brother, his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers, the company of the persons in all were about 120, and said, Brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who spoke, <coughs> who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. Falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language, Achilodama, that is the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it. And let another take his office. So one of the men who had accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness of his, to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias. And he was numbered with the 11 apostles. Faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words. We thank you for fulfilling your promises, keeping your promises, 
and establishing on high your son. And we thank you, Father, that we get to be participants in this ministry that was started with the apostles and that we, too, are now witnesses of your life, death, and resurrection and reign. Father, reign over us. Receive the glory that you have proclaimed your son would have. Glorify your son in and through your people, this congregation, even now, by the hearing and preaching of your word. Amen. You may be seated. I was thinking about a variety of different analogies, so I decided to throw them all out there. I was going to ask you, first of all, have any of you all done this, where you were playing with a um, helium balloon, maybe at a birthday party or what have you, and it got loose, or maybe you let it go on purpose, and you were watching it go, go, and go until you could see it no more? How many of you have ever done that as a kid or an adult? I was hoping that some of you had done that because Jennifer wasn't really sure. I kind of felt sad for her childhood when she wasn't really sure if she's ever had that experience or not. Um, But I I think I've done that multiple times and I'm just watching it and I'm just trying to keep my eye on it as, as far as I can. And I was thinking about how here the disciples were looking at Jesus and what a sight it would have been to see Jesus Um, go up into the clouds and then disappear. And then they obviously were just standing there, staring and waiting. Um, And I I thought about um, recently, last year, when I went on vacation, that um, had the same kind of effect um, or same kind of a situation when I was watching these uh, um, cargo containers or ship, you know, big ships of cargo containers at Virginia Beach. And you watch them and they go out um, on the ocean, and you, you can watch them go and go, and they get smaller and smaller and smaller, and then they just disappear. And then it's really neat at night when you look out there, you see all these lights, because there's tons of cargo ships out there, but you don't normally realize that during the day because they're so far away. You can't see them with the naked eye very easily, but the lights make it through there, so you know that they're there. And I'm thinking the disciples, here they are, they're, they're gazing up, They've been listening to Jesus. They're trying to to put everything together. And like I mentioned to you, it took a few hundred years even for the church to get to the place of just some basic theology of what we're understanding. They're taking all of these things that Jesus has said, and then here they are. They're the ones who got to experience the fulfillment of Jesus being ultimately placed on the throne of David. The writer of Acts is Luke, and if you read Luke 1, you'll see that when the angels proclaimed the birth of Jesus, they said that Jesus was going to come and sit on the throne of David. It was a promise they had been waiting on. And here is the moment Jesus has ascended. Everything is being communicated and, and he, they can't see him anymore. And, and, and where their minds were, I'm not sure. It doesn't say specifically, but the, the angels, maybe the same angel said to the disciples, why are you there just gazing? And I, I was like, well, I would be doing the same thing. Why wouldn't we be doing that? Be just wanting to, what's, what's going to happen next? What, is he going to do something next? Where, what's going on? 
Now, coming back to Earth just a little bit, those cargo freight ships, um, have, have any of you ever, ever ridden a cargo freight ship, a cargo, one of those freight containers? Has everyone ever been on? Because if one of you have, it messed up my question. So what happens to those ships on the ocean? Do they fall off the edge of the world? Does anybody know what happens to those container ships? They go where? Okay, they go beyond the curvature of the earth. And then what happens to them? They go to some port. And what happens there? How do you know that? You've seen it? I mean, you've seen them when they're here, but how do you know what's going on there? What? You trust, but what are you trusting in? I mean, how do you know what's on the other side? How do you know what they do on the other side? You know, recently it was in the news about all of these uh, cargo ships um, being stuck in the Suez Canal uh, because they had one got sideways and... You couldn't get through, and it created this major backlog. How did we know that? <laughs> Y'all are looking for these, these really off. It's really simple. We, we hear a report, right? We've, we've read about it. Someone's reported. That we've, we've been told something. Uh, none of you have ever ridden on a cargo ship, so you don't really know what happens by your own experience. But you've been told what they do when they get over there. You know, in this age, we've actually maybe have seen videos of what is going on, but we're still getting communication about what happens over there. We're not necessarily witnesses of what's occurring on the other side of the curvature of the earth. I wanted to use a really simple analogy to explain where we are as a church today has the same kind of established foundation, we can't see Jesus in the sky. <laughs> they, he disappeared. And, but we were told things about where he was going, why he was going. We have been given report. And even in this particular age of the apostolic age, in, in the portrayal of this particular passage, there were specific people who were appointed by God to be witnesses of what they had seen. Even though they hadn't yet seen Jesus on the other side of the curvature of the earth. And we do find out later on in Acts, there is one particular individual who does get to see what's going on beyond the clouds. Who is that individual? Stephen. And now we have that report. We have report. We have words. We have declarations of what goes on beyond our ability to see. But the amazing thing is, we as a church today in the modern age, we tend to get confused about that report, I think. And we don't dwell upon that report. Many of us don't even think about I think in the evangelical church, really what Jesus is ultimately doing right now. 
I have four very simple points that I hope to at least to initiate your interest if you've never had this interest and hopefully to reassure your interest if you already know these things and have them in your heart and mind. But those four particular things is, is where is Jesus and what is he doing? Where are God's people and what are they doing? In this particular passage is the initiation of understanding at least the fulfillment of what Jesus was called to do in his work. And it leaves us off to where he is at currently. He is ascended up at the right hand of God the Father. Now this passage doesn't highlight that, but there are passages before and after this passage that we now have report of that communicate and clearly define what Jesus' location is and what his occupation is at this time. It also is indicating to us a fulfillment of defining where God's people are and what they are to be doing and what they have been doing and what they should be doing. Because unfortunately, I don't believe that the church is very clear as maybe they once were universally. And I don't want to, maybe I shouldn't speak for other nations, but I feel like the American church particularly is confused in this age about where Jesus is, what he's doing, where the people of God are and what they are doing. And I think that because this past week, as I'm preparing this sermon, I am on my social media, I see all of these posts about things that are going on over in Israel. And I see these posts saying, I stand with Israel, the people of God, because they're being attacked this past week by Palestinians. It's actually been kind of cool to watch in some respects because Palestinians are shooting all of these rockets over into Israel and they have this really amazing technology in, of war, or warfare technology where they're, they're getting just about every one of those rockets and annihilating them. If y'all seen any of those videos, they're pretty amazing. But a lot of people who I know who are evangelical Christians are calling the people who live in a country that is called Israel now, are saying these are the people of God. And I want to encourage you and to communicate to you that that is not consistent with God's word. Where are the people of God? You're sitting amongst some of them. And the scriptures here are teaching us of that transition being fulfilled or about to be fulfilled of that moment. Here in this conversation that Jesus is having with the disciples, he says, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? So in many respects, we're in good company because the disciples are trying to get it too. They're trying to understand all of the prophecies about the restoration of Israel. And they've seen now, they're starting to get it like, okay, Jesus died. He rose from the dead. Now it seems to be time 
for Israel, Israel to be restored. Instead of being under oppression, it's time for Israel to be in its full state. And so they're looking forward to that. And where is Jesus right now geographically in this particular narrative? tells you in just a few more verses. This is going to feel probably more like a study than it is a sermon. He's on Mount Olivet, the Mount of Olives. Does anybody recall, has Jesus been with the disciples before on the Mount of Olives? He has. He was there in a very famous teaching time called the Olivet Discourse. And you will find that in Matthew 24 and in Matthew 25. And in Matthew 24 and 25, Jesus is talking about what is to come. In Matthew 24, he is talking about the end of the age. And it's a chapter that has been studied and meditated upon and debated for for the last 2,000 years. Trying to figure out, just like the disciples We're trying to figure out what's going on and what's going to go on and when is this going to happen. And he talks about, if you could, just turn over to Matthew chapter 24. In the very first verse of Matthew 24, it says, Jesus left the temple and was going away. When his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple, he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And he sat on the Mount of Olives. The disciple, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these things are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then there will be, then they, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased and the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. And then the rest of the chapter talks more about the difficulties of that tribulation and then speaks of the final return of Jesus, the final judgment of the whole world And then he talks about at the end of chapter 24, and I'll go ahead and read in verse 44. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is faithful and who is then the faithful and wise servant? 
whom his master has set over the household to give them their food at the proper time. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find doing so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and in an hour that he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, I cannot, in this particular allotted time, get into a, a very in-depth discussion of all the different eschatological positions. And eschatology means the study of the end times. There are a lot of different interpretations, or maybe not a lot, there are some pretty serious interpretations of the end times that the modern evangelical church hold to. But what I hope to at least convey to you now are some hopeful answers to the questions of where Jesus is and what he is doing and where God's people are by pointing out to you what Jesus was doing here in the ascension was declaring multiple things. One, the fulfillment of the promises that the ultimate Messiah would be on the throne of David. We see here in the ascension that that fulfillment has come to place. Jesus is on the throne of David. He is reigning. All things have been placed and put under his feet. But inside of that declaration through his ascension, he's also indicating that the time has come where there will be the destruction of the temple. And for them, they had a hard time understanding all of that also. But he's trying to teach them and, and, and make clear to them that everything that they have, everything they see that is Israel, everything that they see that is Jerusalem is going to be destroyed because he is in the throne of David. There is no need for the temple anymore. That temple will receive judgment for their disobedience. Now, we are not at that place right now in history where we are gazing up into the sky. We weren't there. We were not there you know, when the ship took off or the balloon went up. We're, we're beyond that particular state. We are now in the active work of the church and we are now receiving a report of that particular time by these very witnesses who were there that formed the 12 apostles, we are now recipients of that news report of what had happened. And things have transpired since then. Our culture today, we have missed a fairly significant chunk of history by not understanding that the things that Jesus was saying there in Matthew 24, in the first part of Matthew 24, about the destruction of the temple, it occurred in 70 AD. You can go into Rome now and there is a big arch called the Arch of Titus. And it was set there in the first century. And you can look at all the different things 
that the governor Titus did in his conquering of the known world. And you will see up there a section that actually depicts the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. It's still there. Many other arcs have been, archways have been, have been designed after that concept of this triumphal victory over what is Israel. And throughout most of the history of the past 2,000 years, most of the church has understood that Jerusalem and Israel is no more as it was in its current or its previous state. It's only been in the past couple of hundred years, really in the last hundred and so years, that people have confused what happened back then. So much today that people are looking on the news today and they think that God's people are residing on that small piece of land in the Middle East. Now, I'm not here to be anti-Semitic and, and speak bad of these people any more than anyone else. They are other human beings. They are uh, a democratic nation. And, and I believe politically there, it would be good to, to support and help. But we need to understand that that particular nation that's there now is not the same nation that existed. In fact, that nation there has only been there since when? 1948. And those people that are in that nation who call themselves Jews, many of them don't even have a lineage that connects them to the people of Israel. Some of them do, some of them don't. Throughout most of Christendom, it has been that the Jews were dispersed and lost because there was a transition that occurred. And it has been celebrated as such at this particular point in history, or remembering this point in history, at the ascension of Jesus Christ on the throne. Now what has happened is, is that people had a particular perspective of understanding the age of the church and what was going on in the church and in most respects, they were generally of the right mindset about where they stood in history. But around World War I, because of the darkness and the death and the destruction of World War I, many in the church became disheartened that maybe we were not quite where we thought we were in the church. And so there started being their different ideas about what the end times, I'm not saying there wasn't ever any different ideas, but it became more developed since World War I in the observation of things that were going on in the world that they became distracted from understanding what was going on here in the ascension. And then of course, since the development of the new state of Israel, People have now acknowledged that these are the people of God. And then in a compassionate response to what happened in World War II with the persecution of the Jews throughout the nation, particularly in Germany, there has been this sentimental connection with Israel that has confused the understanding of who the people of God are. I was hesitant even going that deep into it because I feel like that takes so much more explanation, but it's important to understand at least that framework as we see here that what is going on in Acts 1 is the 
foundational establishment and fulfillment of what God had been promising throughout all of the Old Testament. And Jesus is now on the throne and he has established his temple within his people. And those people are based upon these particular disciples and the teachings they will be teaching and witnessing to throughout the whole world. Another thing that's challenging for us is to understand how God explains to us time frames. Now, obviously, it's been a confusing thing, both in Matthew 24 and in Acts 1. We see that disciples are like, when, 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 when? We've got to know when. And then Jesus is telling them things that they should be seeing as fruits of those times. But he changes the focus of when to what they should be doing. And where they should be focused on. In Matthew 24, he goes to Matthew 25. In that transition, he's saying, you need to be ready for my return. If you are busy being harsh to those in your care or busy partying with drunkards and not focused on my return, when I do return, there's going to be hell to pay. And then he goes into Matthew 25 and he gives us two parables and then a description of the final judgment. And in those two parables and the description of the final judgment, you see first in the parable of the virgins, you see this call to us to be focused on the word and the spirit. To be longing and seeking to be filled, to have our lamps filled with the word and spirit, to be ready ourselves for the returning of the king and our savior. And then secondly, with the parable of the talents, we see that he is calling us to be looking for and understanding and being grateful for the gifts that he has given us and to be about the service of the kingdom. And then in his description of the final judgment, we see that he is describing to us what the fruit of that life of the church should look like when it is in the context of those in our community especially to those who are our brothers and sisters who are suffering. But as we look at things evangelistically, we are to be showing the love of Christ. Once we are rooted in the word and spirit, once we are rooted in the service of the church, this fruit should look like Jesus Christ on the earth. He's not focused on what a lot of Hollywood movies are about the end times. He's not focused on all of that other stuff. He's focused on what the church should look like during this time of end times. So what I was saying before is that we have a confusion of understanding how times work. We have here the initiation of the end of time, which is the time of the church, the time of the spirit. But then there's different times inside of that, and there are different cycles of that. We have in the apostolic age, we have the formation of the church to the witness of people who were actually there and the formation and the declaration of what God wanted us to be and do as a church. It's a different age than what we are now, but it's the foundational age of where we are now. We, none of us have seen the resurrection None of us have seen the ascension. So this established that particular pace. There are a lot of things going on as we go through the book of Acts that are unique to that time of age, but indicate to us the tenor and the direction of the age that we're currently in. And we have to understand that. A lot of times the church, 
likes to want to go back and we want to be just like the apostolic age. Well, we can't do that. We can't go back in time. We don't have a time machine. We don't need to go back in time. Those are foundational pillars for us to be operating off of. But we don't want to separate ourselves so much from that that we forget that we are a part of that extension of that age as the church. And so we can get our cues to the tenor and the focus from the very things that Jesus said in Matthew 25 and from the things that are occurring throughout the book of Acts. We see here in this description in in Matthew 24, you know, and here we have Jesus. He ascended from the Mount of Olives so that they would, you know, put the two and two together. They could look at the situation and go, okay, this is a part of the fulfillment of what Jesus was saying. And one of the things that he clearly indicates in there is in the question of what the church is doing is that the church is going to be one, suffering, and two, witnessing. Those are foundational things about what the church is going to look like. Now, in the apostolic age, in the time leading up to 70 AD and beyond, the suffering was intense. And much of what he is saying in the latter part of Matthew 24 has to do with the destruction of Israel and the following persecution that would occur to God's people, the Christians, during that particular time. We are so removed from that, we, we forget that that is what happened in the past. Much of this was a representational suffering that fulfilled that particular prophecy, but also is set in motion for us a tenor of what the church today will still continue to face in some measure. The witnessing that was occurring is also the same thing. Now we're gonna be going into Acts 2 tomorrow, tomorrow, next Sunday, and we'll be seeing some of the fulfillment of what God is promising of the witness and the declaration of the gospel throughout all of these nations and to the end of the world. But representatively, that also gets accomplished inside of this apostolic age. Paul and other apostles essentially made it to the ends of the world. Now, I know I'm I'm saying a lot of stuff without a lot of foundation work. I'm just giving you some preface work of where this is all going. But we are still about the work of proclaiming the gospel to all nations. So you have these, when you, when you look at how God has, has set up his understandings of epics and times, you often have these representative major time frames, and then you have these cycles inside of it. If you look at Psalm 47, what we read today along with Jonathan, That is a proclamation of what is going to be fulfilled in Jesus, but it still at the same time was a proclamation of the reign of God even then as David is writing it. So he's touching on multiple different ages, centering it in on the ascension of Jesus Christ. Go back and read that. Go back and read all the passages that are in the electionary reading. They're all about what we're talking about today. And it's a very hopeful and encouraging psalm for us on this day. I am trying to make it more clear, and I know it's probably difficult to try to get this all into our head, but we need to 
maybe turn off some of the things that we, some of us have learned. Now, maybe some of you have never had some of those teachings taught to you about that God's people are residing on that small piece of earth in the Middle East as of today. Maybe that's never been in your mindset. But as the American experience has shown, it is something that is now rooted in many of the minds of modern evangelicals. And it is in contrast. And the reason why it's important for me to highlight this as we look at this is that as we go into the book of Acts and we understand the time that has come and being fulfilled through the ascension of Jesus Christ, it's important for us to know what Jesus is doing right now as we live our lives in obedience to our King. We see now, again, we are beyond that particular time. We're not gazing in the sky anymore. We've actually had some things transpire and communicated to us to have this more clearly put into our mind. If we go to Romans chapter 8, in verse 31, it says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how how will he not also... With him, graciously give us all things. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is, who is currently at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It is a very popular passage for us to be encouraged by, but it is important for us to understand the representative fulfillment of what actually occurred for these things to be so. Jesus is at the right hand of God the Father right now. He has not yet returned. That's the only thing left for us to see of Christ is when he will come back through the clouds to finalize his judgment and bring his people to himself. But he's already initiated the beginnings of that judgment just in the same passage that Tim read today. First, or I think it was Tim, it might have been Maurice, with God's people. He's already done that by the destruction of Israel. It's gone. Israel does not exist anymore as it was. It's gone. But that judgment is going to continue. It will be full throughout all of the earth. But also his witness will be full. Even more full throughout the earth. When we look at this particular passage about the persecution and the tribulation that Paul is speaking of, he was talking both of the very imminent persecution that was going to happen to these very people that happened at 70 AD and afterward. 
and the tenor of that particular type of tribulation and persecution that has been experienced today. So we have to understand both of those particular things, the representative suffering, which was intensified by what happened after the destruction of the temple, and the tenor of where we are in this particular age as the church. It's not the same, but it is in some ways. It's kind of hard for us to get our mind fully around that. So this passage is applicable to us, but it is important for us to understand that there was an intensity representative moment that occurred in history that this stems from. We also see in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 22, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. The reason why we should celebrate the ascension right now is that we are celebrating the fulfillment of everything that occurred through the prophecies of the Old Testament, everything that was hoped for in the birth and life of Jesus Christ, and everything that was accomplished through the death and resurrection of Jesus comes to a culmination in the ascension and is currently active now as he sits at the right hand of God the Father making intercession for you. Saying, I've done this work. He is both the judge and the counselor for us. He's both the lawyer and the judge in many respects, as the father is also the judge. But he's, he's carrying these roles, but what he is doing for us priestly in the flesh is he is representing you in the flesh. If he wasn't doing that, we would be hopeless right now. Jesus is physically before the Father saying, it is finished. On your behalf, praying for you, interceding for you, standing in your place for you right now. And he has been ever since the ascension. God's word says so. I know this because it's true. I have not seen him like Stephen did for a moment, that gracious moment that he got to see and communicate to us where Jesus is at the right hand of the Father on our behalf. Stephen was in the participation and a representation of where we are as the church as he suffered for the proclamation of the gospel. He was witnessing before the world the power and the might and love of God. And he was looking upward at Christ reigning forevermore. That is the state of time that we are in. That is how we should view things today. We will continue to be confused. We will continue to have to mature in our understanding. But as we read the book of Acts and as we read all of his scripture, may it be in light of where we are in reality today. That is one of the great things about the book of Acts is that it is 
the culmination of where we are now, not the culmination of where we will completely be when Jesus returns, but in the state of where we are, it helps us to understand our identity today. So when you hear another brother and sister in Christ say, oh, those poor people, God's people over there, say, no, <laughs> we are God's people. Not through anything that we have done, not through anything that we can be arrogant about, but because Christ has reached out and expanded his kingdom to worthless sinners like us. We should celebrate what he is doing. And we should begin through the lens of scripture, trying to maybe take away a little bit of our overly Americanization of understanding his word and trying to understand it as he has explained it. Consider that we are in this particular end age, the church age. And there are plenty of things to be hopeful for that are down to earth, right going on right now in our hearts. We see this at the end of the book of Malachi. In Malachi chapter four, it says, for behold, the day is coming burning like an oven when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. That day is coming. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and the rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all of Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. The nature of the end times in which we now live and here proclaimed through Malachi, this Elijah was John the Baptist as he proclaimed the coming of Jesus Christ and this pouring out of the spirit that we will talk more about next Sunday. The very work of the church, the very focus of the church is here in this last verse where our hearts are being turned. That is why we are here. We do not need to get focused on all of the dynamic craziness as being the primary focus. Where is your heart? Where is your hope? Is your hope for restoration from within and throughout the world? Is your hope for those who suffer that their hearts would be turned? Is your hope for those throughout the world that their hearts would be turned to their heavenly father? That is the hopeful age that we are in today. As you encounter sin in your own life and encounter sin in other people's life, and there's plenty of examples of this, may you have hope for those who fear him he says, for those who fear the Lord, we will leap like calves. 
through this new birth of life from death. That has been accomplished in Jesus Christ and that hope has been established throughout history. We have evidence, we have witnesses that Jesus has come and we also have witness and we have evidence through his church that his Holy Spirit is at work in us. May his name be praised forevermore.